Hello, everybody. This is Brett Stewart. Uh, my apologies for this episode being a day late in your feeds. The reason it's a tiny bit late is because this particular episode required quite a bit more editing. This was recorded on a week where some of my hardware was actually failing earlier in the year, and I had since replaced it, but during that week, my voice on this particular recording was sounding a little bit choppy. It had some some artifacts, as they would call it in audio engineering. So I spent a long time over the last 24 hours going and fixing that as best I could. And it sounds pretty darn good. I think it's very, it's very listenable. And of course, my two wonderful co-hosts sound fantastic as usual. So my apologies for that, but I do want to give you a heads up if you notice that and enjoy this episode of Everything is Illuminated. I think it was a really wonderful discussion, an illuminating one perhaps, and I think you're going to enjoy it just as much as I did which was a ton. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is new to two. Hello, everybody. I'm Brett Stewart. Joining me on this wonderful evening, Nicole Davis. How are you? Oh, um, I'm good. I am drinking this very premium beverage uh, that is uh, the, the vodka of Scotland. I appreciate so. the folly work of the ice cubes. Yes, and Grandpa says enjoy premium countryside. Yes. Uh, David, are you enjoying premium countryside, David Luzader? Uh, y- yes, I don't see any. There's, uh, there's just, I'm in my room with some walls and my seeing eye bitch. And uh, really, no, that's all I see. Right on. Well, that means, of course, we watched a movie with all of those things in it for New to Two. New to Two is where one host has seen the film and the others have not offering us the opportunity to kind of bring it to our friends here and see whether or not they like it or dislike it and really just get more eyes on something that we might personally really enjoy. And for me, this particular week, and it was my pick this week, it was less a movie I really enjoy because I actually really disliked it the first time I saw it. And it was more of a movie that I thought would have a really compelling discussion and has kind of grown on me in several ways. So. We watched uh, 2005's Everything is Illuminated. Before we talk about that, though, I do want to announce next week's movie. Next week is Netflix Roulette, and we are watching Phantom of the Theater. It came out in 2016, and it is a uh, Chinese Hong Kong film that is in Mandarin. So you're going to have to deal with some subtitles for that. But it kind of looks rad, right, guys? I'm excited. It looks interesting, yeah. It, it gives me kind of like a one thing I love about a good horror or a horror movie is when it takes like the haunted mansion vibe of like bright blues and greens and purples. And there's a lot of that there. I'm all into the aesthetic of this trailer. So Phantom of the Theater 2016, that will be next week. And of course, you can find it on Netflix. But this week, everything is illuminated. Uh, writer Jonathan Safran Foer, a repressed collector of his family's history travels to Ukraine to find the woman who saved his grandfather's life during the Holocaust. 
Along the way, he acquires a translator with a fetish for American pop culture and a cranky elderly driver with a seeing eye dog, Birch. What starts out as a journey to piece together one family's story under the most absurd circumstances turns into a surprisingly meaningful journey with a powerful series of revelations. This is based on a book. I have not read it. It sounds like the only one who has is Nicole quite a long time ago, correct? Uh, yes. The book is much more uh, complex. It's got a lot of stories that interconnect over like 200 years. So this is just the the initial sort of uh, episode of the of the book. Oh, very interesting. Now, do you remember like some of the twists and turns of the movie, like the grandfather, for instance, like, was that in the book? Uh, no, don't remember, <laughs> but I do remember them coming across the woman with all the, the boxes of memories. So. All right. Very cool. Well, uh, yeah, to kind of give a very brief rundown of why I picked this movie. Um, again, I, th- I thought it'd be interesting to talk about, and I hadn't seen a lot of films that delved into Jewish culture in a really interesting way like this. I'm not Jewish. I don't know a lot about Judaism and about that heritage. And it was interesting for me to explore that a little bit in this movie or via this movie. Um, And then additionally, I thought it was a very interesting foray for Lee Schreiber as a director. And uh, I just kind it kind of grew on me. The longer I sat with it, the more, the more I digested this movie, the better I felt about it. So I wanted to talk about it. Uh, and also was introduced to me by my girlfriend and her family because they love this movie. And uh, I, I find it very enjoyable, albeit a bit melancholy. It's supposed to have happy endings in some ways, and I don't know if they make me happy. It's, 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 it's weird. I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> um, so really quick, uh, David, had you heard of this movie then if you hadn't read the book? Oh, yes. Yes. I had heard of this movie. I remember uh, when it came out because this was, I mean, 2005 was just a couple of years after uh, The Return of the King came to theaters. And it was still kind of the heady days of the internet. You know, we didn't all have it in our pockets with us. So it was like, what's Elijah Wood going to do next? You know, people were curious. People wanted to know. And he was doing this small little indie film. Everything is illuminated. Nobody knew what that meant. You know, you thought this, this guy was like going to go on to star in the next big thing. And we're about to do these little indie things, but I'd never gotten around to seeing it until now. Yeah. He's taken a very weird career trajectory. Hasn't he? <laughs> well, I mean, this, happy. this year in particular, 2005, uh, he not only did everything is illuminated, but about five months before this was released, a little movie called Sin City was released, ah, yes. the oh, adaptation yes. of Frank Miller's book. And in it, Elijah Wood plays a character just named Kevin. And he also wears a pair of very large uh, reflective glasses that distort his eyes. And uh, except Kevin kills and eats people, um, mm-hmm. although he eats parts of the people before they die mm-hmm. and then parts of them after. So- yeah, it's looking at looking at Elijah Wood's. IMDB around this time is very interesting because just after Lord of the Rings, he was in uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And then you had Green Street Hooligans, a movie I have a soft spot for. Don't at me. Yeah. Sin City. <laughs> everything is illuminated. Happy feet. Just I like hey, happy feet hey, that George Miller happy stages. They're, they're good with me. Look, I'm just saying 
if they had advertised that movie with any hint of truth to it, maybe I would have come away from it better. Anyway, uh, he was also in Nine, which is weird. So, yeah, it's 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 bizarre, and um, I think he works really well in this character. And and the funny thing is, like when I first saw this movie, I just couldn't get over how much his character, um, uh, Jonathan, just creeped me the hell out. I was Jonathan. like, yeah, John, Jonathan, he's just licking stuff and 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 saving things in bags you know uh, he's like several steps removed from eating people and then killing them and then continuing <laughs> to eat them um but then but then it kind of clicked with me a little bit later on when i realized like oh there's actually a really nice sweet sentiment here um and and that's kind of why i like this film is i feel like it has some layers to peel back like an onion but the many layers at the beginning are very whimsical uh that popped up in our docket here a couple times um and it's very aggressively whimsical <laughs> as Nicole says. Nicole. yeah in the first three fourths of the film i mean yeah 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 <laughs> uh, well and it's particularly it's a little wes anderson-y isn't it it oh, is right. but it's i mean it's completely i mean not i suppose pun intended it's underscored by the musical score which is by Gogol Bordello for the most part which bills itself as a Ukrainian gypsy punk band oh Gogol Bordello uh, they yeah, formed in New York uh, but yeah. there, there are gypsy a couple rock. of Ukrainian slash Russian members and some American members and right now there's a Brazilian member as well yeah, um, you guys, I mean you guys can't see it because this is an uh, 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 audio medium uh, and you guys can't see it because uh, my microphone is in the way but I am indeed wearing my start wearing purple t-shirt. Ah, oh, there uh, you go. I purchased at the last Gogo Bordello concert I went to. Yeah, watching a Gogo Bordello concert, and I myself have seen one as well. Um, it is, is an experience. It's an experience. And there's definitely a moment where like the the lead, the front man of the band uh, who's in this movie, uh, Eugene Hoots or Hutz, um, he just starts like chanting and pumping his fist in the air it, and then everyone else starts chanting and pumping their fist in the air. And then you look around and you're like, this is how communism happened. And then like, <laughs> see the inspiration it, for Borat. <laughs> it is insane. Like I, I don't want to tell people too much about it. Cause I feel like people, like if you have a chance to see a Gogo Bordello show, just go. Because yeah, get be... no context because I didn't have any either. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I'm gonna, I I kind of have an anecdote somewhat related to this movie and Coco Bordello and Elijah Wood. Uh, it's like it's not really a great story. It's, a, it's an anecdote. I'm warning you people now. Um, but I saw Coco Bordello open for Cake, uh, which oh, good show. Yeah, yeah, was phenomenal. I've seen we Cake. Had, yeah, we had no idea. And and Coco uh, Bordello is sort of similar to Cake in the way the lead singer kind of talks sings. In a way, uh, but it totally works for their aesthetic. Um, and then they were followed by Tegan and Sarah, which totally killed the mood going off that coming into cake. Uh, but anyway, the way that this all connects is this was around 2005, 2006, and we are at the show waiting for the music to start. And my friend looks over and is like, Hey, is that Elijah Wood? <laughs> and standing not 20 feet from us, was elijah wood and 
you know, no people weren't really giving him a hard time, but we were like we were in high school, so obviously like Lord of the Rings was a big deal for us all at the time when we were like, Oh my god, that's Elijah Wood. And uh you know, one point uh this girl near us was like freaking out and fanning out and like he went by and like she accidentally knocked into him with the with her hair and he like just kind of played it off jokingly and she felt so bad <laughs> because it was Elijah Wood. And we were like, why is Elijah Wood at this? And we, I didn't know about the lead singer for Bardello being in the movie at that time. So we were like, why is he here? And all of that became clear when, and one of the things about Gogo Bardello is that they have these women who are not uh, necessarily, they don't play instruments except for when they play the washboards that are attached uh, to them or bang on the buckets they carry around or scream into microphones. God, their <laughs> shows are so great. Uh, but one of them comes out, these uh, one of these women, and starts aggressively making out with Elijah Wood not 20 feet from us. And uh, that, you know, that became clear there. And we actually, when he walked away at one point, we asked her, my friend asked her, is Elijah Wood a good kisser? And she refused to answer, which I'm still upset about to this day, because I want to know. Oh, well, then the answer is no. <laughs> she didn't. She, she was like, she said it was. Yes, yes, he is. Then she said it was answer. too personal. Which I think, like, she got really modest and kind of like, like, didn't want to. Like, which I think is odd, considering she was screaming into a microphone, not like <laughs> five minutes previous to all that. Uh, and, yeah. and her name is Pamela Racine. And um, they broke up five years later because, quote, Elijah just didn't want to settle down. So Ooh, that that Elijah would seems like the guy who would settle down, right? The player. He just looks so <laughs> wholesome. Well, yeah. So so the reason we're talking so much about Gogo Bardello is, again, because uh, not only is the movie scored with it, but the supporting lead, uh, Eugene Hutz, I, I really need to know how to pronounce it. Uh, he is in this movie as the character of Alex. Alex translator. is translator. Yes, he is hired as a translator, but more than a translator, Alex and his grandfather are hired essentially as like Jew finders. Um, they take, guides. They take, they take rich Jews to the places of other dead rich Jews is how right. they put in the beginning of the movie. Right. But, but like, and the funny thing is that when you see Alex and his grandfather together, it's very clear that, First of all, neither of them know where to find like the graves or or any of these of, of these people if they're alive, and they don't really know that much about Jews anyway. <laughs> like, um, or but do they? But they see. Oh, I know. But uh, they are swayed <laughs> by the quest of young Jonathan. Jonathan has arrived after uh, after a death in his family to find uh, the woman who saved his grandfather from the Nazis. And so the whimsy goes dark, right? At least a little bit. Does that yeah. work? Comedy and drama? Because it, it toys with both. Yeah. I th- Go ahead, Nicole. Oh, sorry. I was going to say it's, it's more, you know, I, w- I wouldn't say it goes that dark. It's just sort of a little bit of dark humor thrown in with the whimsy. It's, it's like the whimsy of a cynical person. Um, but it doesn't get. I, I would argue that it doesn't get really dark until like maybe about like halfway, two thirds of the way through the movie when you start getting little flashes from the grandfather's memories, the the yeah. you know quote unquote blind uh, driver. 
Um, (laughs) but then it, it turns real dark about three quarters of the way in and, um, yeah, that was see. Okay. With what happened, we're just spoil here because I don't know if it works. uh, Here's the thing. I, all right. So if you haven't seen this movie, you obviously don't care. You're listening to a podcast about it. Uh, you find out the grandfather was in this village that Elijah Wood is kind of searching for and was one of the sole survivors of uh, a, a slaughtering of the village because they were Jewish. And then the grandfather kills himself shortly after. But for me, I don't know. And that, that didn't take anything away from the movie for me. And in fact, when the grandfather killed himself, like there was like moments before just the way he was acting. I was like, oh, okay he's going to kill himself. Like, I don't, I just had this inkling of, for some reason I was like, it's, he's going to die. And I'm pretty sure it's going to be by his own hand. Uh, so for me, like it felt in line with the tone of the movie. And we should flesh out that, uh, you know, that this grandfather had created a whole life around hiding his Jewish heritage, partly because of fear of being found out by the Germans, but also then part, partly because it just became his identity. Um, in fact, it became his identity to even despise the Jewish people in many ways. I think a bigger part of it is survivor's guilt. Oh, that that's a really good point. That's he, a really felt, good point. he felt really bad for living through that and was trying to act like that was not part of his life at all. Yeah, and, and this is a scene that upset me when I first saw the movie. Um, first of all, because it's it's visually very upsetting. Like, um, he, he slits his wrist in a bathtub and you don't, you don't see him slitting his wrist, but you see him sitting in the uh, red bathtub, which is distressing. Um, and then I, I talked with, with Claire, my girlfriend about it because she's seen this movie many times. And I kind of came to the realization via, you know, her that, uh, he had lived very unhappily and really just pissed off at the whole entire world all the time up until he came to terms with whatever the demons were of him surviving the Holocaust and hiding his Judaism. And it was almost like a coming to peace with himself of like, I don't need to hide anymore. I just want to go. And it's like very, it's like the most peaceful death scene I think I've ever seen, which is what kind of blew my mind about it. Like it unsettled me. And then it made me feel like, okay, I kind of get it. And it just, a lot of feelings guys which i think speaks to kind of uh some of the strength of the movie if you i mean because we all had different reactions to it but we had a reaction um which i think is an important from an artistic standpoint and i don't know i i think i think i agree with claire there was a a letting go um that he did yeah i mean it's you know he Jonathan goes to Ukraine to go try to find this woman and the village they were from um, because it's written on the back of a photo. It's Trochenbrod. Um, and they go out. He goes out with the, the tour guide, the grandfather, and Alex, the translator, his grandson. And they go all over the countryside and they meet, you know, all sorts of different people. And, you know, by the end of the movie, they come to this house in the middle of a field of sunflowers and find out that this woman is like the last survivor of the village of Trochenbrod, um spared. We don't know why, uh, because her sister was killed and her father was killed. Um, I would assume it's, 
you know, from old photos of her and her sister, it's because she was very beautiful back at that time. And who knows what she had to do to survive. Mm -hmm. Um, but she's, she is portrayed in the, in this, um, flashback as the last living survivor as she's walking through uh, around a mass grave where lime has been thrown on the bodies. So some of them have these cracks in the flesh that are bloody. And um, one of the corpses, you know, the, the eyes twitch and open and it's one of the residents of the village. And we find out later, this was the grandfather that we don't know if he fainted or he faked it or what have was, you, but he was hit in the head. He had scars. Oh, okay. So he was, he was grazed. Mm-hmm. by a bullet and knocked out um, and awakens to everyone dead except for her. And he simply takes off his jacket with the star of David on it and then walks away and presumably to leave his entire life as a Jew behind. Um, little heavy handed with the jacket, but yes, continue. It is very heavy handed with the jacket. Uh, well, and it's I mean, very just- handed where, when, you know, near the end, the, as they're leaving the woman, um, she asks if the war is over. You know, it's like, yes, you're way out in the countryside, but it's been, you know, 50 years in the timeline of the movie. Um, you would think you'd have figured out that the war is probably over by now. <laughs> or was she asking him personally? Ah, that's, your- a, that's a good question. <laughs> but I mean, I, I did love the fact that when they get to this woman's house, she has... She has become a collector like Jonathan. We've seen earlier that Jonathan has this wall full of things that he has collected. Yes, it's a very creepy wall. And all the things, he collects everything in these little plastic bags, pins them up to a wall, and they're all arranged around photographs of people. So all of them are little, little memories of the people that they represent or possessions of theirs or things that remind him of them. Um, And when they get to Ukraine in this woman's house, she has this entire wall full of boxes and all the boxes are labeled. They're not labeled with people's names. They're labeled with things like memories and dust and in case and different things, but they are all that is left of the people of the village of Trochenbrod. And she is, she has, has made it her, it's her purpose in life for her to remember. Mm. Now we're all agreed. It was unnecessary for one of the things on Jonathan's wall to be a condom, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> his older yeah. brother. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. I just wanted <laughs> to mention you. that. Cause I was like, why did you have to show me that? I didn't need to, uh, why did he, oh no. <laughs> uh, not well, that's totally what makes me think real. he's a little bit mentally ill. You know, he's so so. neat and tidy. He's always wearing this, you know, black suit with a white shirt and a black tie and his hair, you know, combed with a little bit of product in it to make it lie very neatly and tidily. And he showers once in this movie, but he looks great. (laughs) Right. Yeah. He looks very clean and tidy at all times. And you know, is always collecting things in these little plastic bags uh, because he says he's afraid that he'll forget if he doesn't. But I mean, he, he's not a a social person. Right. There is something very 
damaged about this man who has, you know, made it his mission to remember, but is not making any memories of his own. Right. Exactly. Yeah. He, I, I was kind of thinking initially after I'd seen this movie, like, we don't really get a lot about his character, but then I'm like, no, we kind of get everything about his character because this is kind of a guy that there's not a lot to him in a way. Like that, the whole collector thing, like that is his identity. Right. And, and maybe like, this is, you know, this is the first time of him making a memory. I mean, he gives up part of his collection to Alex at the end, you know, he, um, and to the woman, he gives her the pendant. No, oh, wait, what's the grasshopper oh, right. and Amber. Yeah. He gives her. Yeah. And then he gives, uh, Alex, the, um, the star of David that his grandfather wore. It's like for the first time he is, sharing his collection his his own memories with someone else and also the 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 pendant in particular i believe it's stated in the movie that because we should note that the woman who saved his grandfather is not the woman they find out in the countryside no it's her that is that's her sister right so her the woman who saved his grandfather who died left this pendant and it was his wife. Right, right. Yeah, his grandfather's first wife, which he, he doesn't know until they get there and the sister starts talking about how they got married and how in love they were. Right, exactly. And, and but she they, didn't actually, Augustina, the woman that they're looking for, didn't actually save his life. It's, it, it's only indirectly in a way because the, the grandfather, Saffron, went to the United to. States to find a home for his mm-hmm. his wife and, and going to come the next you know, week. to be born oh, child yeah right oh yeah right but but it makes sense he gives it to the sister because the whole purpose of the pendant is like so it can be remembered right um they they ask why she left it behind uh and that's a very interesting through line in this movie to me because while most of the stuff he's collecting is creepy um, there are definitely some really compelling reasons to collect a lot of the tiny little tchotchkes he does. And it almost makes you reflect on, well, it does make you reflect on like, yeah, tiny little things that exist right now could later hold significant sentimental value and historical value. Um, and I found that very interesting in this movie because, uh, you know, I don't know. It just it kind of clicked with me after I sat with it for a long time, and I realized that his collecting had purpose beyond neurosis, um, and that was really cool. And I hope that he stops a little bit, not like all the way, but I hope when he leaves, so he can just like go have friends, right? Because he makes a he makes a friend, presumably his first in this movie. <laughs> uh alex and you kind of hope that whatever is holding jonathan back from having a slightly more normal life can kind of happen now that he's solved his family's mysteries yeah and i kind of identify a little bit with jonathan in that collection way in a, in a small way you know i have a thing like where recently i was cleaning out closet getting rid of some clothes getting rid of just some crap and i was like why do i still have this i'm like oh well because of this time you know, I had it because I bought it this time or like I liked it back then. I was like, I haven't worn this shirt in, I don't know, two years. I haven't read this book ever and I don't really want to. It's like I just have all this stuff because it's because it has this meaning that is also sort of meaningless in a way. And it's like, 
yeah, maybe I'll lose. You know, I'm not going to think of the person that it's associated with because I'm not going to be seeing it ever again. But also it's like if I just fill my house up with other memories of other people, sort of that thing with Alex or with uh, with Jonathan, I'm like, I'm never really going to live my own life or have my, or like make new memories or, or new connections, stuff like that. I don't know. I, I'm just saying I kind of identify with Jonathan that way. Well, yeah, especially because he is resistant. No, I, I wouldn't say resistant. He's not resistant to befriending Alex. He doesn't know how. <laughs> um, and Alex kind of pushes his way through that with painstaking broken English, which I know got on Nicole's nerves a little bit. <laughs> it, it, uh, yeah, it does. A but the premium bit. countryside. Right. And, and his people. premium English. His English is not so premium. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's one but of his favorite is- words is, is premium. He loves premium. And I do want to talk a little bit about the dog. Simply, this is purely um, an indulgence for me. There's really no reason to talk about it because the dog doesn't have that much of a role in the movie. But I just love the dog. Sure it does. Yeah. I guess. Great dog. Sammy Davis yeah. Jr. Jr. Sammy yes. Davis Jr. Jr. After gra- grandfather's favorite American entertainer. And, uh, and it's kind of great because the grandfather is so pissed off at life and so pissed off at his family and everyone around him that he just tells everybody he's blind and and it's just such a weird long running gimmick in the movie and i've never seen anything like it uh because he goes as far to have this vicious dog always follow him around and he drives them everywhere she's not vicious she's demented yeah she's just crazy (laughs) my my dog uh, I, I was reflected in Sammy Davis Jr. Jr. <laughs> All she wants is other people's love and affection. She just doesn't understand how awkward she is. Yeah, right. Uh, and Sammy Davis Jr. Jr. fortunately survives this whole movie. There's no heartbreak with the dog. So, in fact, she gets to frolic at the very end of the movie in the final scene. Well, no, but she has that little moment at the grave of the grandfather. And- yeah, that's a punch in the gut, right? Like, <laughs> oh man, uh, and also like the Holocaust in this movie. But I, I, I hate, I hate to like yeah. talk about how sad the, the, I find the dog losing its owner when it's a movie about a genocide. Well, um, but it's not about. It's about these people. Yes, it is. You're right. I mean, and and that's the backdrop to it, and that's the context to it. But you're right, and and I think that's also what I really like about this movie is that it only has like three people in it the whole time. It doesn't really give you anybody like most pe- most movies would give you like people from where um, Jonathan was coming from. when all we get is a grandparent and like you just, it focuses it hyper focuses on three people and t- a little bit four at the end. I will say as much as I did enjoy this movie, I didn't like the last part when Jonathan's walking through the airport and sees yeah that sucks that's weird that's like a lot it's like a weird lost thing i don't understand what's happening i don't understand why they did that at all no as as he's walking through the airport all the people in the airport look like people he's encountered on this journey and it's a theme you know it it circles back over and over again that this photo he has of this grandfather and this mystery woman who saved his life the grandfather looks exactly like him uh, just without the glasses. And I think it's just to show, you know, that all of us are, all of us are descendants. All of us have these connections to the past, uh, into other people in different places. 
And I, I think that's what it's meant to symbolize is that everyone has a heritage and we, we bring it with us, whether we know it or not, we bring it with us everywhere we go. See, Nicole, I think what it actually was, was he got, he fell asleep in the United club and <laughs> missed his flight. And then and it's all out. a dream. Yes. And then <laughs> walked out uh, and saw all the people he saw walking in. And, no, but yeah, I think that's a really good analysis of that. But I'm with David. Initially, it's a, it's it's a very bizarre scene. Um, it's also the only time that like the whimsy goes beyond just the cinematography and the score, and actually gets like just weird to me. I don't know. Um, it, it enters magical realism for a moment, right? Yeah. Sort of no, Liam Schreiber is is you know I I looked at an interview that he did. Um, around the time of the movie, and he was very into exploring what it what it meant to be a Jew, and he has right. you know his own heritage. He has a grandparent who's from Ukraine, and um, was thinking about that when he came across the story and went to buy the rights, and um, you know found out got Eugene Hutz by accident almost you know kind of bumped into him and discovered he too was from ukraine and had this this history and was you know the camera loved him uh when they did a screen test and so he decided to cast him and i think that eugene hoots does a really good job as oh, alexander yeah. yeah i kind of like i'm kind of disappointed he hasn't done other movies i mean he's had a couple things but nothing really uh not not much else aside from no that. feature film roles. He's been yeah. in some short films and thing and documentaries, but yeah, yeah I mean he was yeah. he was quite good. I thought you know he doesn't his accent is not actually that thick. He's got a little bit of an accent, but he really amped it up for this oh, movie. Well, he amps it up on stage too when you see him perform. Like when they when he is singing in Gogo Bordello. I mean, it is. It is a perf- it's performance art. Oh, guys, go yeah. see a Google Bordello show. Right. right. When you see him interviewed, it's you can barely it it just barely comes through, but Yeah, and this is also like the most the most clothes he's probably ever worn. Or at the very <laughs> least, it's the most normal clothes he's ever worn. Oh yeah. I see. He, he will be shirtless the entire time that he is on stage. Or 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 he'll be wearing like a weird hat and like cowboy overalls and like two different colored shoes. And all, I mean, he also always a mustache, always a mustache. It was kind of yes. hard. I didn't recognize him at first in this movie because he lacked a mustache. Now, now, first of all, I do want to find the context of Lee Schreiber just bumping into him because I hope that Lee Schreiber was at one of those concerts because <laughs> I just can't picture it. But maybe. Uh, but yeah, um, Lee Schreiber has not directed anything since. This is he's, something, he's, David. He's no, which is kind of sad. He's directed two I'm, episodes of Ray Donovan. Which is a show he started. Right, which he starred in. Okay. Um, but yeah, he hasn't I, I thought he like this this movie was made by a very competent director. Right. This movie's not perfect by any stretch. There are there's a couple lulls in this movie. It it's you know, it's not a perfect movie, but it's a lot better than most debut films for directors Absolutely. a lot of right. films for season directors it's it is very competently shot the the work that he did with his cinematographer was very clearly executed in a very meaningful manner there are some gorgeous shots in this movie the shot when they first come across uh the the cabin in which this woman lives is 
I mean, maybe Wes Anderson was on set for a day because again, it is very Wes Anderson-y, but oh my God, that cabin in the middle and the cement, the symmetry of all the flowers. It's stunning. It is an absolutely stunning film. And it really bums me out, especially because this came from a place of passion, right? This came from a place of, this is my, my own heritage. I, he clearly loved the book and it's like, do it again, dude. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, so this it takes movie, money. Yeah, this movie made three million dollars. It cost seven million dollars to make, which is kind of surprising to me. Uh, I'm not quite sure where seven million dollars went in this. Uh, movie. Probably some of it's the location shooting. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess that must must be it. But Elijah Wood in 2005. Uh, no, but I mean, but if you look at stuff that Elijah Wood's done, you know, he does Elijah Wood. Yeah, you're right. You're totally right. What I love about Elijah Wood is he doesn't do anything he doesn't want to do. Um, I mean, look, he voiced Spyro. What are you going to say about that? Uh, <laughs> but usually, you know, you, I don't know with how well this movie was made. And yeah, I know they didn't even make half of its budget back. But usually that's like, OK, well, you've made your first film. So now here, go make a second one. And, and you know, we'll see where you go from there. And Lee Schreiber has only in my opinion, anyway, I, I know that a lot of his early success came in the late nineties and early two thousands. But if you look at everything beyond this, I mean, he's been in major franchises. He's, he was an X-Men. He was in a, a best picture film with spotlight. He, he's, a younger generation has now seen him in a ton of stuff like in, into the spider verse and all that sort of thing. He's voiced, he has voiced two separate Marvel villains or he has played two separate Marvel villains. Um, what's the other one? Wilson Fisk in into the spider verse. Kingpin. Uh, yeah. And he yeah. played, he played uh, uh, Sabretooth in X-Men Origins Wolverine. Oh, yeah. I just mentioned both those. Okay. <laughs> I, I, was, I was like, who is he? Um, and so I was reading off his IMDb and didn't realize those were his characters. Okay. Yeah. Um, Hold on. I think real quick, you're trying to like just brush off Lee F. Schreiber's. Like, he hasn't really done much. Uh, Ray Donovan's <laughs> been going on for like seven years, man. No, I realize that. And it's also earned him a, a ton of nominations at the Emmys and whatnot. Um, but I guess what I'm actually saying is not that he hasn't done much and more that like he has done more for his career post-2005 than pre-2005. And that's why it surprises me he wouldn't have the clout to go to someone or just do it himself. Um, well, I mean, he hasn't been in... <sighs> He he hasn't been in anything that was hugely commercially successful until uh, Into the Spider Verse, which I is going to be huge. But X Men Origins Wolverine was might have made some money, but it was not critically successful. That's for not, sure. Well, no, it was not critically successful, but it made almost four hundred million dollars. Which... Yeah, but he he was also in the Last Days on Mars, which is dreadful. Um, <laughs> he's been in a lot of not so great movies as well so but you know spotlight playing a character you won't really yeah oh he was fantastic really spotlight Spotlight. Uh, i have not seen isle of dogs yet but people love it oh isle Uh, of dogs is really good oh what what what, uh so oh uh defiance people haven't seen defiance no yeah he's one of the resistance fighters in that movie yeah which is another movie about being jewish Mm -hmm. right so i mean this this movie kind of had to grow on me um you know, I can see this progression in my notes as we go on. It's like, first note is, why is there a gross close-up of a bug in the opening credits? <laughs> yeah. 
And then mostly unknown cast, uh, using a handheld camera while inside a moving car is not a great idea, generally speaking. Creepy Kevin vibe with Elijah Wood staring silently it, with these distorting glasses. Yeah, yeah, I'll back you up on that. Yeah, it's all the stuff in the U.S. is not that great. Uh, both, I think, visually speaking and just sort of, yeah, cinematically speaking and, and story-wise, there isn't much happening except that his grandmother dies and that's sort of the 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 kickoff event that sends him to go look for the woman in the photo with his grandfather um but they get you know they cut to the ukraine and the the music kicks in and it's so it's like eastern european ska you know it's like oh, yeah. oh, so, it's sort of yeah. aggressively upbeat and and i'm listening to it and i'm like it's like it's challenging you it's like how jewish is too jewish let's see if we can find out yeah leningrad uh is largely featured in this movie tin hat trio like it it, it does like it, it dives into the culture in an interesting way I, right and i don't i just want to say you know i don't have any objection to it to it being a very Jewish movie. It's just sort of the way it's... <sighs> it's aggressive it, with it. It's very oh. aggressive with it. Yeah. This is a with movie... That. Yeah. So there's permeated and there's aggressive. This, this is a movie that I don't... <laughs> I, I, you know, I liked it. Uh, I definitely did. I, I, I would have a hard time re- uh, recommending it to everybody. I would have to... Oh, yeah. Recommend definitely. it on a, a certain basis. But it's a movie that I do kind of want to watch again um not now maybe in a couple of years you know when i'm introducing mm-hmm. to someone else to it but there is like i'd be curious to re-experience this movie now that i've seen it now that expectations are gone you know what would this movie be like when i already have a familiarity with it because i feel movies are so different when you see them the second time right I yeah i mean there's different. stuff in my notes that that now I see, you know, that I come to this thing like right after the meal where he gets the one potato and a, a piece falls on the floor. You know, he shows at, I think it's at that meal that he shows the grandfather, the photo mm-hmm. and the grandfather falls silent and gets very somber. We have not yep. really talked about that actor. Um, I don't, I assume it's Boris Leskin. Um, one of the only four uh, characters in the film see, for, that's listed on. But, uh, he, yeah, it is. That is. Yeah. He was so good. He's awesome in it. And, and uh, Nicole, I'm really happy you brought that up because I was going to reply to David saying that the, what you'll notice the most the second time around, having just gone through this, is um, just you start to understand why the grandpa acts the way he acts. And yes. that actually gives you a much greater appreciation for this man's performance because there's so much nuance to that. Uh, that you don't know going in the first time, I actually think is um, better fleshed out knowing his history. Uh, but he's awesome. And apparently he was a cook in Men in Black. And he's so, 95 years old. He's still alive. Oh, my goodness. Good for him. I love it. Is he going to come <laughs> back? New Men in Black? New cook? Oh, no. Look, look we're, not gonna, we're not going to... We're not going to dive into that <laughs> we're not gonna dive into that dumpster okay oh, i love those that actors don't love them anyway no 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 no. don't do, don't do this, don't do this. add <laughs> us both on twitter apparently yeah. um all righty 
Well, let's uh, let's wrap up with a couple other brief discussion topics we had. Um, the woman who lives in the sunflower feed uh, field is called Lista, which can be translated as sheet, as in sheet of paper or list or writing. Her role in life is to be that on which history is written and preserved. Hmm. That's I cool. that that's pretty deep. That's a nice. <laughs> That's a nice little detail. I well, like that's, that. that's something I just pulled up from, you know, going through Google Translate and putting, you know, Ukrainian to English. Um, I didn't even realize that this woman had a name uh, until I went into IMDb to, you know, yeah, figure out who this woman is. Because I don't remember them ever addressing her by name or her ever telling them her name. No, um, I don't believe so. So she's credited as as Lista, and so I put that in, and it comes out as sheet. And then there's these other sort of corollary translations about writing and paper or lists. So I mean, that's that's what I take it to mean is that she's, and you can see from the movie that she she has made it her life to remember these people and oh, yeah. to take care of their memories in case people come searching. When Alex kind of pushes her a little bit and she's, you know, it's finally like, oh, someone has come sort of thing. You can just kind of see the heaviness on her of like this thing I've been carrying silently now will be shared. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's something that's, it's a big element of, of therapy (laughs) is, you know, you have these, these huge heavy burdens and they can be so difficult to share with other people because it, you have to dig it out and it makes it raw again and exposes all the painful parts again. But in sharing it, it also makes it a little bit lighter and makes it a little bit easier to carry. Mm -hmm. Totally. And so I think, that that seems to be the case with her too, because afterward she's she's ready to give up this box of in mm-hmm. case that has her sister's wedding ring in it, among other things. Yeah, she uh, she is now joined to these other people. They have they have uh, they have shared something, um, which is obviously very powerful because it also affects the grandfather in a very powerful way. Right, who then, you know, kisses her hand as they leave, and then uh, when they get back to the hotel, kills himself. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, to, to talk about the dog a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> so, there are two dogs that played yes. Sammy Davis Jr. Jr., Mouse and Mickey. Um, and I oh, want to point out two things. First of all, if you go to Mickey's IMDB page, which I've linked in our Slack here, or in our Hangout, <laughs> It says trivia, dog. Um, and I'm really glad it clarifies that. And then two, um, I found the quote I was thinking of that Alex, when Alex is explaining the purpose of Sammy Davis Jr. Jr. And I think that it really perfectly encapsulates like a red flag of, hey, here's what's going on with the grandfather before you know the first time. Um, he says, this is Sammy Davis Jr. 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 She is grandfather seeing eye bitch. Father purchased her uh, for him, not because he believes grandfather is blind, but because a seeing eye bitch is also a good thing for people who pine for the opposite of loneliness. It's true. Father did not purchase her at all, but merely retrieved her from the home for forgetful dogs. Because of this, <laughs> she is not a real seeing eye bitch and is also mentally deranged. 
people who pine for the opposite of loneliness. That yeah. is a great line. There's some there's some good lines in this movie. I also want to point out that on Mouse's IMDb page, it does not say trivia dog, so I don't know what I Mouse know. Was. Maybe it's <laughs> the person in the dog costume. Well, Mouse uh, was the... Mickey was the, the stunt dog, I guess, uh, and Mouse was the face. Uh, <laughs> That's yeah, how they, now we know where the seven million went. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Jeez, we all spent on dogs. The um, stunt dog. No, I mean, I mean, th- I think this speaks very well to Liev Schreiber's writing skills. Yeah. You know, some of it's from the novel, but some of it is him, you know, simplifying it and distilling this one story out of it. Yeah, and, and I, deciding I, what was important to keep. And I know that the, this probably the line from the book, but just that, that I mean, uh, everything is illuminated in the light of the past. That line has just stuck with me all day since I watched the movie last night. Yeah, it's, it's a great line. It's made me just kind of think about a lot of stuff like that's gone on in my life and like how much like, oh, re- like learning more of my history, my family history is really like shed a light on a lot of things. And it's like, yeah, everything is illuminated by the light of the past. <laughs> well, and, no, it and, definitely and, is. And, and Schreiber had a moment that many of us, all of us have had at some point, which is you have a great idea and you start doing it. And then you realize someone already did it and did it better. And that was the moment he had when he was writing a screenplay about him and his grandfather from Ukraine and then found out this book existed. So um, he had clearly, I would imagine, already had some stuff he was pulling from that original screenplay. Hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I hope he makes something else. Let's talk about our final discussion topic. Is it a bad thing that this movie tells a fictionalized story of Trotschenbrod? Uh, I'm not actually familiar with what the real story is, Nicole. Well, um, in the movie, it's something like a thousand and some odd people uh, are killed by, you know, the SS. Um, and in reality, there was a there was a a large village. Uh, it was hidden in a forest, but there was something like five thousand residents. Um, there was this village of Torchenbrod and. Uh, it was actually the Ukrainian police with just a couple of SS uh, sort of supervisory people who came in and exterminated uh, the town. Uh, it was this this Jewish shtetl people had been driven out of various other places and had all sort of gathered. Um, and so it was actually, you know, the people of ukraine and not the the evil german you know ss troops coming in to to wipe out the jews so uh there are some people who are unhappy that this part of the story is left out or changed uh, simplified the village is made smaller than it actually was um into sort of this tiny defenseless town instead of this sort of thriving commercial town which is what it actually was um, so, I mean, so some people, I think, view it as a, a bad thing that it was adapted in this way. Oh, that's, oh boy. Did we really pick a good one? For the final <laughs> I, would, topic? I, um, I would say that, uh, uh, I guess the book is supposed to be nonfiction. That's okay. no, it's supposed to be fiction. It's, uh, a, it's well, a fictionalized story. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, uh, though, though the man who wrote it wrote himself in as a lead. Okay. Well, that's always problematic there. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know if it's, if it's a fictional 
story. I mean, I understand why people would be, I don't know. This is a really complicated question uh, that maybe I'm just going to slowly back away from. Here, I got something <laughs> on it. Uh, I, I can speak a little bit to why I think they might've made the village smaller. And that is because it is a recurring plot device, almost a gag at several points in this movie that you don't even know if the village exists because they, they can't find it on maps and they're asking everybody and they're pulling over on the side of the road and asking angry construction workers and no one knows this village and they have a couple names for it. So if it was a more thriving town, then I feel like it would be harder to run that through line movie. We think does make the final discovery of it, or at least of where it used to be um, much more impactful. So I, I, I give it a pass on that. Um, it's very problematic when you change history on who's killing who, though. I suppose the sentiment's the same. So I don't know. That's right. Not- I mean, I, it is addressed a little bit in the movie where um, over the dinner where he, Jonathan shows the grandfather, the photo, um, you know, he explains, uh, I forget how it comes up, something about why his grandfather left in the first place, but um, talking to Alexander and telling him that, you know, well, it's, you know, Jews were not exactly welcome in Ukraine either. So, you know, they they hid their their backgrounds where they could and they... Alexander doesn't really believe him. He asks his grandfather, you know, it's true. It is. He says that people were anti-Semitic during the war. People in Ukraine were anti-Semitic. Is that true? And the grandfather doesn't answer him. And yeah. So much about the grandfather that like, I do want to rewatch it I because I feel like so much of that is going to be illuminated. Well, there, I said it. Uh, yes. See? It. <laughs> um, but, you know, I... I also think so. So you noted that what was the, uh, the Ukrainian auxiliary p- police are the folks that actually killed everyone in this town, and that was a local police formation set up by Nazi Germany. So, and I'm seeing photos of them right now. W- essentially, yeah, they're they're wearing like Nazi uniforms. So I mean, I mean maybe to make it digestible, right? Like not everyone going into this movie is going to understand that there were people that were not Germans killing these Jews. So So as long as it was set up by the Germans and they looked like the Germans, let's just make them Nazis because that's the easy bad guy. We all understand. I don't know. I mean, I feel like as I'll be curious to see if Schreiber has ever asked about this. I feel like that's something he would get asked about. Yeah. So I, I will say, and I just came across, apparently there was a Canadian Ukrainian, um, commenter, uh, Ivan, I shouldn't try to pronounce his last name, uh, <laughs> who wrote in the Prague post lamented the book misrepresented the history of the Jews in Ukraine. The factual history of the massacre of Trachenbrod quote stands in sharp contrast to claims made in the book Unquote. I think that is kind of an interesting point where this, is about preserving history. The story is. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, and yet it changes it. And yeah. Yeah. And you know, you can say like, well, it's, it's fictional. So blah, blah, but it is like, they're still drawing on real historical events. So it's one of those things where I don't, I haven't read the, I haven't read the book. So I don't know. I imagine that, uh, Schreiber is kind of just going along with what's already established in the book. 
But that is a really interesting point that even though this is mm-hmm. fiction, you know, you're drawing from real events. You're using a real town's name, a real village's name, and you're changing its history. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think it would have been, I don't know. Would it have been better if he, they had made up a town name, but then with this, with this topic even coming up, you know, that made me do research and I found out learning the actual history of Trojan and about the, the town. And there's this, there's apparently this book that exists that tells a lot more of the story of the life of the town and not just how it ended, you know? So there's this historical thing that, that brings the life of the people who lived there. Um, and you can go find that and read that and learn about these people who lived their lives and should not be forgotten. You know, and there are memorials there to this day. I, I found a website about, um, you know, these a group of people who took sort of a heritage trip out uh, and went to find the site and held this, you know, these ceremonies on it. It was sort of this joint American-Israeli um, trip that they made. And there are four memorials around the site. It's not just this one mound on the ground. Were they were they led there by a kind of uh, rotund man? Who <laughs> Thank you. I was just about to say my mental image as soon as she said this pilgrimage is Jack Black leading them onto a rental <laughs> bus. Yeah, no, couldn't I couldn't not mention it. Yeah, right, shout yeah, out calling Paul back King. to <laughs> right. <laughs> so and and the person with the whimsical uh, accent. Um, <laughs> But no, but I mean, you know, this actual trip, there were, there were locals who also came and attended this ceremony that they held. And um, so, I mean, that, that is a good that the movie does is that it, it spurred me to be curious and to go look up these things and to learn about the real town um, and what actually happened and what life was like before and how people are remembering them now. And so. This is something I'd really love to hear listeners you know go onto our facebook page find us on twitter send us a, a, a smoke signals however you want to get in touch with us and just let us know you're you know do you think that uh that they shouldn't have changed the history i'd be curious to get the broader discussion from more viewpoints yeah regardless of whether or not you watch the film uh first of all i think you probably really should have i feel like this movie is great you need to see it without knowing <laughs> the first time so hopefully you did that um but regardless let us know you know should they have changed this history is that something okay to do in films as a whole uh when you're using real life locations and real life events um if it happened in the book I mean, or not if it happened in the book. Um, If the book also changed that history, I'm willing to give the movie a little bit more of a pass, and I'm more curious as to why the author changed that, because I'm not sure if it matters. Because, like, I'm stretching myself to find reasons why that might have been changed, right? Like, the town that's hard to find, and Nazis are easier to relate with than hate. But, like, I would have understood this if it was more accurate still. So I'd be curious to know what the reasoning behind that was. Um, I'll do a bit of digging on that. See if we can pop it up in next week's show, but uh, please email us on that. I'd be very curious, Um, but I think that's going to do it for us. And everything is illuminated. We're running a smidge long, so we got to get out of here. I got places to be and 
movies to watch like phantom of the theater comes out it came out in 2016 and again we're watching that next week for uh netflix roulette nicole where could people find you online Oh, you can find me taking care of our Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast. I am on Twitter, although I have not tweeted in a while, under at your word with, uh, uh, yes, at your word with Y-O-U-R-W-O-R-D-W-H-I-Z. I have a letterboxed account, Nicole underscore Davis, um, where I've got our movies all grouped together and my ratings on each of them and some reviews of some of them. And I think, yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> David, and what about you? Thank you. <laughs> uh, you can find me around the internet under the username Davluz. That is D-A-V-L-U-Z. So Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, find me there and on the Broke Butt Mountain podcast. Very good. And I actually want to dial back really quick. I didn't actually just say, are you guys happy that I introduced you to it? Like, let's get some very broad, <laughs> very broad high level thoughts before I give my plug. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm glad this movie I've always meant to see, and I'm glad now that I saw it. And it, I've had movies that I've always wanted to see that I then regretted shortly after watching it. I do not regret watching this. So I, <laughs> like I said, I want to see it again. So thanks. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and I liked it. I, I liked it. Uh, it grew on me as I watched it. The, the um you know the aggressively quirky use of english is a little bit grating in parts but it's meant to be charming it does sort of become charming as things go on and it's a a touching story at the end if a little bit um pointedly poignant um in a way i suppose but it's an important you know, it's it's recalling other important stories of that period in history. So I think it's a good illumination of of that that part of history and it's well told. And I'm I'm really hopeful that maybe Lee F. Schreiber will direct something else or at least write something else in the future. Absolutely. Uh I'm happy I was introduced to this a couple weeks ago myself and uh I highly recommend checking it out. I think it's the kind of movie that provokes some, obviously, very thoughtful discussion. But you can find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. That'll do it for myself, David, and Nicole. If you'd like to email us three, we did mention we would really like that, particularly on this. It is moviegoround at tiltingwindmillstudios.com or find us on Facebook or on Twitter. Just search Movie Go Round Podcast and you'll find us on all those. We'll see you next week with... Phantom of the Theater.